I'm Daniel Chacon. Welcome to Words on a Wire. Today, my guest is Dr. Melissa Castillo Planas, author of A Mexican State of Mind, New York City and the New Borderlands of Culture. This is a fascinating scholarly study, although it has incredible narrative drive, about a new kind of immigration from Mexico. Uh, young Mexicans going to New York City in order to become part of the hip-hop scene and part of the art scene, part of the music scene. It's a fascinating study. And I first found out about this book on Facebook. Uh, Melissa and I were friends on Facebook, uh, and uh, she would post about the book, and uh, that got me interested in it, so I ordered a copy. I say we were friends, not because I defriended her or not because she blocked me for posting something stupid, uh, but because I quit. Facebook. In fact, I quit all my social media accounts. I deleted them all. I found that I was spending way too much time on them. And even though it seemed like it wasn't a lot of time, a minute here, 30 seconds there, when I added it all up, I could see that in fact, I was spending far too much time and, and not just literal time. I'm also talking emotional time. If I would put something up and it didn't get enough likes, I would feel sad. And perhaps I would even feel self-conscious, like, what did I do wrong? How come nobody likes it? Uh, and, and sometimes I would even delete a post after a certain time if it didn't get a certain amount of likes. I would think that, well, maybe nobody likes this, and uh, it felt bad. But if I posted something and it got a lot of likes, I mean, hundreds of likes, I, I, I felt really good. I got that shot of dopamine, and it felt really, really good. But dopamine goes away fast. And the, you keep going back to get more and more and more. And so I found that um, I would, I guess in, on, on some level I was addicted. It's no secret that these social network platforms are designed to get you addicted and that you are not the customer of Facebook. You are the product. The goal is to get you to click on what advertisers want you to click on. The goal is to get you to behave in a particular way. And they use these incredibly sophisticated algorithms that nobody understands and that, quite frankly, get to know you better than you know you. Anyway, it's much more complex than that, and I don't have time to go into it, maybe in a future show, but I do want to honor what is good about it, and that is I know about this book because of Facebook. Melissa Castillo-Planas is editor of the anthology Manteca, an anthology of Afro-Latinx poets, she is co-editor of La Verdad, an international dialogue on hip-hop latinidades. And she is author of Quatli Q Eats the Apple, a collection of poetry. She is an assistant professor of English at Lehman College in the Bronx. Dr. Castillo Planas, welcome to Words on a Wire. I'm Daniel Chacon. Welcome to Words on a Wire. Today, my guest is Dr. Melissa Castillo Planas, author of A Mexican State of Mind, New York City and the New Borderlands of Culture. This is a fascinating scholarly study, although it has incredible narrative drive, about a new kind of immigration from Mexico. Uh, young Mexicans going to New York City in order to become part of the hip-hop scene and part of the art scene, part of the music scene. It's a fascinating study. And I first found out about this book on Facebook, uh, Melissa and I were friends on Facebook, uh, and uh, she would post about the book, and uh, that got me interested in it, so I ordered a copy. I say we were friends, 
not because I defriended her or not because she blocked me for posting something stupid, uh, but because I quit Facebook. In fact, I quit all my social media accounts. I deleted them all. I found that I was spending way too much time on them. And even though it seemed like it wasn't a lot of time, a minute here, 30 seconds there, when I added it all up, I could see that in fact I was spending far too much time and, and not just literal time. I'm also talking emotional time. If I would put something up and it didn't get enough likes, I would feel sad. And perhaps I would even feel self-conscious, like, what did I do wrong? How come nobody likes it? Uh, and, and sometimes I would even delete a post after a certain time if it didn't get a certain amount of likes. I would think that, well, maybe nobody likes this, and uh, it felt bad. But if I posted something and it got a lot of likes, I mean hundreds of likes, I, I, I felt really good. I got that shot of dopamine, and it felt really, really good. But dopamine goes away fast. And the, you keep going back to get more and more and more. And so I found that um, I would, I guess in, on, on some level I was addicted. It's no secret that these social network platforms are designed to get you addicted and that you are not the customer of Facebook, you are the product. The goal is to get you to click on what advertisers want you to click on. The goal is to get you to behave in a particular way. And they use these incredibly sophisticated algorithms that nobody understands and that quite frankly get to know you better than you know you. Anyway, it's much more complex than that and I don't have time to go into it maybe in a future show, but I do want to honor what is good about it and that is I know about this book because of Facebook. Melissa Castillo-Planas is editor of the anthology Manteca, an anthology of Afro-Latinx poets. She is co-editor of La Verdad, an international dialogue on hip-hop latinidades. And she is author of Quatliqiu Eats the Apple, a collection of poetry. She is an assistant professor of English at Lehman College in the Bronx. Dr. Melissa Castillo-Planas, welcome to Words on a Wire. Thank you so much for having me. It's a very interesting book, a very interesting subject, and you researched it for years and years, 10 years uh, or more even. Uh, and, uh, but when I started to do research about this book, I found out that you were a poet. I didn't know you were a poet. How did you go from an MFA in poetry to a PhD in American and African-American studies? What a journey that must have been. Yeah, so the program I did, I was at Fordham University. I actually, it's, it, it's interesting. It's not an MFA. It's a master's in English with a concentration in creative writing. Mm. So it's similar to an MFA in that it emphasizes workshop. But I also was able to take, um, I also had to take classes in, um, in literature and, and more like the formal academic realm. So it was kind of split half and half between uh -huh. workshop and, um, and academic work. Um, and I was told by my professors that I also had this, um, this aptitude for the academic work and for the academic writing. Mm -hmm. And so though they were the ones that really encouraged me, one professor in particular, Mark Nason, um, who's a history professor, not even in my field, um, <laughs> really pushed me to to apply to PhD and to consider becoming a professor. Um, but it's actually a funny story. Um, I started off in fiction writing fiction. Um, and I'm sort of a failed fiction writer. <laughs> um, and 
um, took a poetry writing class to actually help my fiction writing mm. and found that the once I started writing poetry, it just flowed out of me. Um, but I started writing poetry relatively late, not until I was in my, my um, mid-20s. Um, but now it's it's one of my major modes of expression. And I, and I kind of forth between academic work and poetry. Well, what did you go to the university for? What was your original intention? I went to the university because I was tired of doing administrative work and <laughs> restaurant work. Right. Um, and I was lucky enough to um, apply to various programs. And Fordham was one that actually gave me um, support and funding and gave me a TA ship. Mm -hmm. So I was like, this sounds way better than, <laughs> you know, kind of doing grunt work. But I really didn't know what I wanted to 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 be. I knew that I um, had an interest in creative work, but I didn't have a life plan yet. I was kind of making it up as I went along. Well, I'm a fiction writer. I'm not much of a scholar, and I really uh, appreciate and respect the the research and the language uh, that that uh, allowed you to put this important book together. But I, I'm a fiction writer, and um, but when I do have to do scholarly work, I, I I don't quite have that same feeling like I'm in the zone, like time disappears, mm -hmm. like I'm completely one with the work. And I'm wondering if, if you were to have the opportunity to just say, OK, I'm going to you can go anywhere you want, be on an island and work and work and work. Would it be creative work or would it be research? I think it just depends on what what mode I'm <laughs> in. Um, it, I tend to really swing back and forth. I work like six months on one and then six months on another. Mm -hmm. So it just be what mode I'm in right now. I'm more in an academic mode. Um, I'm working on. Um, a book about um, what are the mental effects of containing children um, at the border right oh, now. Wow, and so, that's an important that's an important study. Yeah, so I'm really looking at that and trying to. Um, right now, I'm just in the preliminary research, right. but I, I plan to do to talk to as many mental health experts as I can to talk to you know people who have mm. um, young people who have gone through this. Um, and so my mind is really is really there right now and not so much on the creative work. Right. So it's just I think it just it, it would be when you put me on the island. <laughs> That's a great answer. And let me ask you something. When you are really deep into the research and all of or most of your uh, intellectual and creative energy is going into going deeper and deeper and deeper. Do you find that somehow it, it, to put it. I don't know if this is kind of too weird for you, but do you find somehow that when you are incredibly focused that somehow the universe conspires to present to you opportunities that you didn't expect? Mm. Like suddenly you, you discover a source that you didn't know that you were going to have access to. And that just kind of broadens the experience. I think so. Absolutely. Um, in fact, um, I just on happenstance met a young man who had been detained as a child and has written about it. And I just thought that that was, you know, just a message to me that I needed to continue the work right. because one of the things that he spoke about was that the trauma and he was only detained for a couple of days. And yet it was incredibly traumatic for him. 
Um, and so that just inspired me that this is work that has to, that has to be done and I have to continue it. Yeah. In many ways, I think when those things happen to us, when we're deeply focused on a project, creative or intellectual project, uh, it is kind of a confirmation that we're on the right path and that we're doing the same thing. And so I'm glad, uh, that happens to scholars too, because uh, I know it happens to uh, poets and, and fiction writers. We'll be working on something and then suddenly we'll discover something in our environment that just deepens what we're working on. And I, this is an incredibly organic book, A Mexican State of Mind, from the beginning to the end. And even though it's not, quote, poetry, I, it, it's very clearly written by somebody who cares a lot about language. And let me ask you a little bit about your first book of poems, Cuatlicue Eats the Apple. Uh, it's about to be reissued. Can you tell us a little bit about this book and how, it, and, and, and how it's coming about that you're going to reissue it and where we can get it? Yeah, so the, the book, what's so interesting is I wrote that book while I was writing A Mexican State of Mind. Mm. Um, and I was really involved in the Mexican community in New York City. I mean, I still am. Um, but um, I, when I first came, to, I, I grew up in upstate New York, and I came to New York City for college. And when I first came to New York City for college, I was more um, surrounded by, you know, a Caribbean community. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't aware that there even was a Mexican community in New York. It was through... Um, working in restaurants and side jobs that I, you know, started meeting Mexicans in New York and started, you know, entering into their creative worlds. Um, and so what's interesting about that is their creativity inspired my own creativity mm -hmm. and inspired me to continue on and write uh, my poetry. So Coatlicue Eats an Apple is about, um, is about my experiences in the Mexican community and as a Mexican American in New York city. Um, and just, you know, grappling with, you know, questions of identity, belonging home, um, as well as, um, admiring the creativity of the Mexican community in New York. So there are like pieces to different artists and stuff like that as well. And, and it's really an interesting and, and very symbolic, uh, Title: Quetzalcoatl eats the apple. Eating the apple, of course, evokes for most of us the uh, you know the uh, the uh, Adam and Eve uh, Garden of Eden. But Quetzalcoatl, of course, uh, evokes uh, uh, indigenous uh, deity from from Mexico, and you're kind of like taking both myths and and putting them together. Yeah, and again, that's going to be um, that's that that's inspired by a lot of the artwork that I was mm -hmm. seeing being done in the Mexican community that was invoking you know, indigenous um, deities as well as other things. And then um, as well as the work of Gloria Saldua and her yeah. work um, around that. But yeah, it's going to be re-released by um, Pen and Anvil, um, which is a, it's again, it's what you're talking about in terms of these kind of um, um, serendipitous. fortuitous, <laughs> serendipitous, yeah, moments. Um, I lived in Boston for a year and they're a Boston-based publisher. And um, I just, I went to some of their events and met their publisher. And then when the book went out of print, um, they contacted me and, and, and asked. So hopefully that, that will happen. Um, I hope that that happens around the time of my next book of poetry coming out, oh, which yeah, is called Chingona Rules. Yeah, it's coming out in Ching August. Wait, wait, Chingona Rules? 
Chingona rules. I love yeah, it. Every, all, <laughs> all my titles have like double meanings, yeah, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. That is um, awesome. So that's coming out in um, in the summer. So I'm hoping for them to be released at the same time, so that you know, right. hopefully one invokes interest in the other. And who's publishing that one? The same publisher? No, uh, this is a Finishing Line Press. Wow. And, you know, it's it's interesting because you're having so much coming out during this pandemic, which has completely uh, realigned the way authors promote their work. Uh, we used to do readings. We used to do book signings at bookstores. How are you getting this book out there and how do you plan on getting your poetry book out? If are you going to are you doing Zoom readings, virtual readings? Yeah, I've done a number of Zoom readings um, and I've also just taken to um, um, putting it out there that I will take the time to sign books and mail them to people. So okay. I've mailed out probably like a hundred books that way. Um, a hundred? You know, oh my because, God, that's great. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's a lot of work, but you know, people miss having the signed book. You know, they right. want the signed, the signed book that they would get at a reading. Um, so I collect addresses and, and, and mail them out. Um, I do, um, I've done, a, I did a virtual reading with NYU and um, Lehman. And I, I've also been joining um, classrooms to talk about right. the book and, and, um, and, and uh, teach the book to, to students. So all of those things is what I've been doing. Um, but I do miss the in-person a lot. Um, my book came out right as a pandemic as the pandemic hit. So that was disappointing, but um, it's been exciting to see um, how I've still been able to get it out there. And you're a, an assistant professor uh, at uh, Lehman College, I believe, in, in the Bronx. Yes. Uh, are you guys having face-to-face -face classes or is everything remote right now? Everything, yeah, everything's remote and we expect it to be remote in the in the spring as well. Right. Um, and, um, it's difficult, especially, you know, right now with everything that's going on in the world and 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 the elections and COVID and, you know, unemployment. And, you know, I I want to be able to give my students a hug, but that's the last thing I can do. Right. <laughs> right. Right. You know, we're uh, uh, we have a bilingual MFA here at the University of Texas in El Paso, and we have students and professors from all over Latin America. And of course, as you know, culturally, uh, you know, we kiss, we kiss on the cheeks uh, when mm -hmm. we greet each other, which is uh, not something you find in many creative writing departments throughout the Nor North America, throughout the United States. But yeah, it has completely altered the way we interact with each other now. You know, we, we it's almost like uh, we feel uh, that, that, uh, that, what is that, that, that um, mala ojo energy between us. Like we want to be able to touch and kiss, but we can't do it. So we have to like... Uh, 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 keep apart. It's, it's, it's incredibly challenging. Yeah. Um, so let me, let's talk about your book, A Mexican State of Mind, New York City and the New Borderlands of Culture. Uh, this book started, at least according to your introductions, about um, uh, as you were working at a New York City restaurant. Can you talk a little bit about your experience um, working in restaurants and how that introduced you to this subject? Yeah. Um, so I worked in fine dining restaurants in New York City for about, I'd say, 12 years throughout college, um, graduate school and um, my PhD, my master's and my PhD. Um, 
And so there were a couple of things I noticed. I noticed how differently I was treated um, as, you know, a white, light-skinned, Mexican-American, educated um, than other immigrants to um, to, the, to to New York and in the restaurants um, who perhaps didn't have the same. Um, it's it's interesting. Sometimes it didn't even matter if they had the language facility. You know, right. um, you know, they weren't given the opportunities that I was. I came in with no experience and was able to move up the ladder very quickly. Um, and other you know people that I saw who you know worked just as hard, if not harder, were not given those same opportunities. Um, and I also saw the back of the house workers just being treated terribly, um, yelled at, screamed at, um, being disrespected. Um, I used to be told not to speak Spanish um, when it was really, you know, the quickest mode of, of communication at times. Right. Um, so it was it was just incredibly painful to see. But through it all, I met some incredible as well um, people who were um, engaged in doing um, music or artwork or um, activism um, on the side um, because restaurant work was so unsatisfying and was Mm -hmm. so just, they didn't want it to become all of their lives, right? They wanted to still retain um, those, often those creative aspirations that they had before they came to the United States. Um, and so I, um, I met some incredible, incredible people, incredibly talented people as well. And it shifted um, how I thought about, especially back of house workers as just, you know, hard workers, you know, who send money home, but rather, you know, incredibly hard workers who send money home, but still have whole other aspects to their lives that right. we don't often think about or write about. Right. You have this incredibly poignant uh, detail somewhere in the book where you're talking about one of those fine Mexican restaurants in New York, and um, and uh, the manager is himself uh, Latino, Latinx, uh, maybe even Mexican-American, uh, and he tells one of the more Indian-looking Mexicans the, that uh, he doesn't need any more Mexicans in front, stay in back. Yeah. <laughs> even though he's a Mexican, and just, yeah, that's... that's um, yeah, it's really uh, it, it, it's it's an interesting perspective that you're giving us, and I think you know I I don't know your field uh, very well, but I do suspect uh, that uh, that what is an incredibly unique aspect of this book, a Mexican state of mind, is that you're looking at you're focusing on a group of immigrants that are young, they're hip, and many of them are coming to New York City for the art scene, specifically the hip hop and spoken word scene, which is a new kind of immigration that you're, that you're writing about. Can you talk us a little, talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah. So, I mean, it's interesting. Um, a lot of the early studies of Mexicans in New York, you know, talked about kind of like a chain migration, right. And what I, you know, where, um, one person migrated and then, you know, more of the village migrated, which is a traditional form of migration. But what I found was this community of young people from more diverse areas of Mexico, from all over, um, many of them 
were from Mexico City or migrated first to Mexico City mm -hmm. in order to explore their interest in the arts. Um, and then from there, you know, I would ask them, you know, why, why did you choose New York? And some of them answered um, because hip hop was born in New York. Um, and they wanted, and I, you know, I was blown away because, um, and the more I talked to them, the more um, I understood that they had this deep knowledge and respect for, you know, for hip hop, you know, as being um, from the Bronx, from an Afro-Caribbean, Afro-diasporic, African-American, West Indian, um, you know, origin, um, as, you know, having four elements, they all, you know, they have, they form these crews and, and collectives where they practice, you know, different elements where different people have their specialties. And it really harkens back to, to, you know, what I've studied about, you know, hip hop in the seventies yeah. or in the eighties. Um, and it's, it's completely fascinating. Right. And what a way to uh, to to bridge uh, the two subjects that interest you most: how we create art with language, uh, and music, and um, and your research. Um, can you tell us a little bit about one of the, the really interesting characters? Um, is the story of M.C. Rafi? Rafi? How do you say it? M.C. Rafi. R H A P Y. A young oh, yeah. woman from Mexico City. Tell us a little bit about her and how this is how how her narrative kind of serves as as um, an example of the kind of research you were doing yeah so rapi is a a young uh young woman um from uh the outskirts of mexico city um and she um found herself um you know a, a young mother she became a young mother and she found herself um struggling with unemployment in Mexico City um, and decided to move to New York City for its opportunities and specifically because of her interest in hip hop. And so she moved to New York City and she moved to Sunset Park, um, which is the center of uh, Mexicans in Brooklyn. And she found herself, um, she made connections with this group called Buendia Brooklyn, which is a, a multinational, uh, multilingual collective of um, of artists and MCs and producers and, um, and she, she's interesting because, you know, she also speaks on how, you know, hip hop is not always welcoming to women in the book. Right. And she, um, she, she, she wants to make her music anyway, even if it's not always welcoming to her. And so she kind of recognizes that kind of duality of hip hop, um, that she's not always going to be as welcomed as a man. Right. Um, but I think she's found this supportive place in Wendy Brooklyn and, um, and they've produced, um, you know, an album of hers, um, videos. Um, and she's, I would say she's their foremost female MC now of the group. Wow. That, that's that that is that is really inspiring to come all the way from Mexico City to New York City, surviving just because you want to uh, create your art. And I'm sure it's it's certainly much more complex than that. But in in doing this research, you have attended countless events. Um, uh, and one that really struck me is uh, 
the gentra-eft, I can't say the actual word, the gentra-eft uh, <laughs> uh, event in Brooklyn and uh, by Buendia BK. And I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about uh, how this issue of gentrification may threaten this artistic movement and, uh, and also about the event itself. And my God, if you ever get back to writing fiction, this would be quite a novel. Oh, thank you so much. Um, so, oh, that, I'm going to make a note of that for something later I was thinking about. Um, so but yeah. research even as we talk. <laughs> exactly. Um, but yeah, there, the, pre, pre-COVID, right, right. Um, there was numerous, um, a really vibrant um, um, kind of life of like, going to shows and flyers at least every month or so. Um, and this, this was an interesting show because it involves so many different groups. So Wendy at Brooklyn reached out to many different MCs um, and um, different organizations all around the idea of gentrification. And so what I really loved about the show was how it it was multilingual. It had, you know, people rapping in English, people rapping in Spanish. Um, you know, um, it had um, different different MCs. Uh, I think Rebel Diaz was there, which is an MC from uh, a Chilean MC mm. um, from the Bronx. Um, so it was just, um, it really showed how the Mexican community is reaching out and not not necessarily being like insular and um, and reaching across to make a impact in their community, right? Um, that they're they're here and they're recognizing the issues that are, that have previously, you know, affected you know Puerto Ricans, African Americans, and are um, and are taking part in that um, type of activism. But I, you know, I think definitely one of the major themes of the book is the connection between um, the arts and activism. Right. Um, but it's definitely, um, you know, the issue of gentrification is definitely a struggle because one of the another major theme of the book is a lack of space for the Latinx arts and for Mexican-American and Mexican arts in particular. Um, and so, you know, when rental prices are really high, it's really hard for these collectives to find, to, to manage space. What they do is they own spaces collectively or they rent spaces collectively in order to be able to afford them and they share them. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, you know, with gentrification, they're pushed farther and farther out, you know, into the outskirts of Brooklyn or, you know, up high North into the Bronx. Um, and so it becomes more difficult for them to form community if, you know, um, due to due to gentrification, so this was an important event that really talked about that. And as you were doing research, you met people like uh, MC Rappi, and you met people like Raúl Hernández of uh, Hispanos Casando Pánico. And I, 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 this may be a little bit off subject, but have they seen the book? They have. I sent them <laughs> copies. That's great. Um, I, I, I don't know how much they've read of it. Uh Um, I do know one MC JC who's in prominently in the book as well. Um, he's read the book and really liked it. So that made me so happy because I shared a lot of, he shared so much with me in the book. 
And so I was really concerned with doing him justice and telling his story mm-hmm. um, properly. Um, and so, you know, he conveyed to me that um, he really enjoyed the book. Um, but, uh, you know, others who others have asked me, you know, is it going to get translated into Spanish because, you know, they may may not read in English. Um, you know, that would be amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the meantime, you know, their pictures are in the book. They can see their pictures. Right. They can see their quotes because the quotes are in Spanish. So, right. you know, I think, I, you know, I I made, you know, every every effort to, to share the book with them because, um, you know, I really saw them as collaborators with me. There are also many of them serving us the food that, you know, we happily eat up, right? right. And don't make that those don't make those connections. Um, and so, you know, I hope that um, that kind of irony of what we accept in Mexican culture, what we gobble up and what we, you know, reject um, through the restaurant industry, that metaphor through the restaurant industry um, gives, you know, gives people some, some pause next time they're, you know, eating out at one of these fine establishments. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's definitely a vibrant community that you're introducing us to, and I, I'd like to thank you for uh, uh, for giving us this 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 uh, perspective. Uh, and I'd also would like to ask you, since you were really kind of a poet before you started this book, if you would be willing to read us uh, one of your poems. Um, yes, I'd be so pleased to. So. Um... The poem I actually want to share is it's a poem from my new collection of work. Um, So just giving you guys all a little bit of a sneak peek of that. It's called My Body is a Scar. My body is a scar. He traces the wounds of my body in wonder. Your pain threshold is incredible. Pain. I've lost count of the number of times I've asked someone to scar my body. I don't remember when it stopped hurting. Maybe I stopped running so long when I stopped feeling the needle, looked forward to that 20 mile ache, how legs feel like knives are carving at my thighs. Your pain threshold is incredible. Threshold, by mile 23, the aching stops. I smile again, endure it again, another medal for the collection, another memory I'll soon diminish, like the book dates I dream will cascade the length of an arm. I realize it's not a threshold, it's an addiction. Addiction, that the same giddiness that marks a new tattoo is no different than those last three miles. That I don't just endure pain, I enjoy it. That I don't just collect medals and tattoos, but insults and critics. That maybe I enjoy depression, a vacation of the mind from thinking about this fucked up world and my place in it, my superpower and my kryptonite. My addiction to pain is spectacular or spectacle. I can't tell the difference. I think of the spectacle as spectacular violence we are witnessing in our streets. Black deaths as painful as they are public. Child murder as tragic as it is preventable. Children stacked like fruit baskets, like Legos. A border turned into containment. Containment in a desierto where dreamers go to die. The death of dreams is violence too. It's more than a 1950 mile wound. It's more than a fence dividing a familia, a pueblo. It's a line, a lie, discarded in production or destruction, forgotten in the containers of our American dreams. He traces the wound of my body in wonder. 
your pain threshold is incredible. Instead, I wonder, are we a nation of addicts? That was Melissa Castillo-Planas reading from her forthcoming book of poems. But today we are celebrating a Mexican state of mind, New York City and the new borderlands of culture. Um, usually, uh, Melissa, we have, um, we have our theme song that brings us into the show. But bringing us out of the show, I'd like to play uh, some of the music that, uh, that you talk about in your book. And I'd like to thank you for introducing us to this incredibly rich uh, cultural movement that is going on uh, in, uh, in your city. Thank you for joining us on Words on a Wire. Thank you so much. Dedicado a los que no conocen La voz, el estilo, no flow, el juro, fuck the bosses Quiero dejar en claro mi nombre y ganar respeto Que sepan que puedo ser versátil en cualquier tiempo Quiero llegar y sonarme, desexplotar I wanna be real, still be a rap superstar Acabar con cualquiera que se me cruce You like the beats, let me tell you quién los produce Mucha gente ya conoce mi voz, mi estilo y mis diferentes flows Hispanos, vámonos, la cima ya está esperándonos Oyeron, dijeron que son verdaderos, dicen lo que no, solo quiero dinero Rapero, guerrero, hasta el cementerio, papel acusero Es lo que quiero para ser el primero, el mero mero, en el mundo entero La gloria espero, tengo piel de bronce, pero corazón de acero Y eso define mi estilo, yo sigo pasivo, cativo, mi hijo, mi motivo Pensar positivo, ayudar cuando escribo, calles donde vivo Más en agresión, me hacen pensar, pensar que el juego no es fácil Tengo que ser original, tener un estilo versátil Es que más romper, lo tengo que hacer, para probarles que puedo crecer Quiero convencer a los que no creen que hay futuro en HCP Sinceramente mi mente no miente La mente caliente, la rima caliente Se siente como 50 de repente De repente está bien, no está inconsciente that is a sample of music by Hispanos Causando Pánico from New York City via Mexico. You can check them out on YouTube and watch that video. I'm just going to listen to the rest of the song. I'm Daniel Chacon. Thanks for joining me on Words on a Wire. Saben de mí, yo voy a decir